Welcome to another episode of Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM, where we dissect topics and issues relating to life in veterinary school. I'm your host, Seth Williams, and I'm a veterinary student at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. So today on the podcast, we're going to talk about one of the biggest questions facing prospective veterinary students. What does it actually take to get into vet school? So for most of you, I know you've been working for years and years and years trying to make it to vet school, but what are schools really looking for in a prospective student? What classes do you need to take, and how do you set yourself apart from the other applicants? Well, today I am so thrilled and honored to invite on Doug Tyndall. He's the recruiting director at the University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine, and he's going to shed some great light on this very topic. Welcome to the podcast, Doug. Thanks for coming on. How are you doing? It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Good. Well, we've known each other for a long time. Well, as long as I've been in vet school, so two and a half years. And why don't, before we get started, just tell us a bit about yourself, what you do at Mizzou, and a bit of your background. Well, um, my name is Doug Tindall. I am the, my official title is Student Recruitment Specialist, um, but I go by my formal, uh, former title, uh, the original title of Coordinator of Student Recruitment. Um, so basically, what that job entails is I speak to prospective student audiences, uh, which is a very broad spectrum, uh, as young as you know, elementary age all the way mm-hmm. up through uh, college, which is the primary audience. Um, and, and most of my primary duties or, and or responsibilities, that includes traveling to colleges and universities across the country and speaking to their pre-vet audiences, their pre-vet clubs, um, to um, procure their interest in University of Missouri College of Veterinary Medicine. Um, hopefully <clears throat> that to the point where they will apply right. uh, and then subsequently uh, be admitted and then ultimately graduate. Um, so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell. You know, my background is, uh, my professional background has primarily been in marketing mm-hmm. uh, for most of my professional career. So uh, this is just another component of, you know, marketing slash recruitment slash public relations. So my job pretty much entails uh, all of that, those aspects. Awesome. Cool. So like I mentioned in the intro is the big purpose of this episode is to kind of shed some light on the big hot topics about what it takes to get into vet school, what committees are looking for, what can you be doing to prepare and essentially make it so that you're the most successful, both in applying to vet school, getting into vet school, and then in vet school itself. Um, so to start off, I wanted to ask uh, at the earliest stages, so you know you want to be a veterinarian. I know a lot of people these days, they know since they've been able to even think for themselves, they've been able to talk. Um, but when is the right time to start preparing? You know, again, I had a mother a few years ago who um, contacted me and she said, well, you know, I can't recall if it was a son or a daughter. I believe it was a daughter. And she said, well, you know, she's early and she's young. Um, you know, it's early. Uh, but, you know, in my estimation, it's never too early. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the phrases that I hear most common, <clears throat> commonly and I probably abhorred the most is uh, I'm just a freshman. Right. Um, you know, to me, what does that even mean? You know, if you have the aspiration the same as a senior, as you did when you were a freshman, then why couldn't you start when you were a freshman? Right. Um, I have uncovered 
internships with um, uh, multiple uh, entities, government agencies and pharmaceutical companies, all with the intentions of those interns becoming or pursuing some aspect of veterinary medicine. And the minimum qualifying age for these internships is 16 years of age. Um, So literally, there is no uh, earliest stage of preparation. Uh, The youngest person or a student that I've probably ever spoken to was nine. Um, and, but I made some, I drawn some correlation that even a nine year old could understand uh, right. to veterinary medicine. Uh, and, and so actively, you know, they can begin as early as probably 12, mm-hmm. uh, 13. I have, uh, created two summer camps, Uh, One camp is for 12 to 16 year olds and another camp, which is for more advanced students, not only advanced in age, but also in their preparation Mm -hmm. that is from 16 to 19. So the 12 to 16, you know, each of the sessions that we host in that in that camp are all conducted by a veterinarian. So literally they're shadowing that they can document uh, can be as early as 12. So mm-hmm. uh, to me, a 12 year old will have the same cognitive ability as someone who is 16. Right. Um, you just have to you know, explain it to them on that same level uh, in, in, a, in a, a manner in which they can comprehend. Sure. You know, and understand and, and interpret. So, you know, realistically, you know, their preparation can begin as early as, you know, the early adolescent stages. Now, on the flip side of that, is there a, a time that is too late to start preparing? Oh, most definitely. Um, you know, in, in my estimation, again, uh, you know, if you really haven't started focusing, um, planning and preparing academically, Mm-hmm. Um, because there is the other aspect of the non-academic, which is more subjective. But typically what we find is a lot of these uh, students who are current veterinary students or even those who are in the pipeline have been academically successful and as well as independent for many years, mm-hmm. um, independent of their their parents' encouragement to do their homework. Right. Um, you know, to be student-oriented or, or uh, uh, academically driven. So if they aren't prepared by I would say you know junior year of high school then yes in in that regard academically it's going to be too late right you know you can't just suddenly flip a switch as you are about to uh, embark upon the precipice of college and say oh I'm suddenly going to be a studious you know person right uh, so yes there is an, uh, in that regard a uh, a time that's too late right and I'm thinking, too, that let's say you change your mind halfway through college or even after college um, that you want to go to vet school. There's obviously a, uh, an opportunity to go back to school to do the prerequisite courses again, get your experience and so on and so forth. But do admissions committees look back far into your previous schooling to see how you were as a student before you decided to go to vet school? Is that something to worry about? Let's say you were a uh, not as strong of a student as you are now as you're preparing, is that going to affect the way things end up in terms of getting into vet school? Well, in the uh, let me back up, you know, because the caveat to, you know, my statement earlier would be that, yes, it can be too late, but there you can also rectify things, you right. know, because there are just as many students who uh, in their first attempt at college were unsuccessful. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, they come back around and have reapplied themselves and and uh, have been 
just as successful, equally as successful as many of their uh, their uh, applicant co- counterparts or even their uh, later on uh, veterinary peers, mm-hmm. you know, peer students. Um, so, yes, you know, there are two parts to that. You know, um, you know, if they are so driven and motivated uh, academically that they can really focus and, and do the work, then that are, there is um, something indicative about uh, the correlation of that applying to vet school. Mm-hmm. So um, if, you know, the students who, you know, didn't do so well the first time, uh, you know, and, and then they come back around, which by then they could possibly be a non-traditional student. Right. They have the option of, at least at the University of Missouri, um, executing uh, or enforcing a six-year ELIM, which is mm-hmm. a six-year elimination process. Uh, that allows them to basically eliminate any grades that are older than six years, um, you know, six years or more. And so that is a, a, a very viable option. Right. Uh, it, it's a very applicable option to mm-hmm. many students who, like I said, the first time around, they didn't do so well. Uh, but these, you know, their second attempt at college and completing the prerequisites or even pursuing another degree. Right. Uh, where they're more focused. Um you know, one thing that I feel our committee is extremely sensitive to is the fact that everybody makes mistakes right. and everyone is deserving of a second chance. Um, n- you know, no one is infallible or flawless. So, you know, what we like to see and what we can appreciate is someone who has recognized that and has rectified it mm-hmm. um, and has built on that to be more successful the second time. Sure. That's great. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about the prerequisites. I know that every school is going to be a little bit different, but I want to touch on what those main prerequisite courses students should be looking to take as they're preparing to apply. You know, the core prerequisites are uh, pretty consistent, uh, almost synonymous with most schools. You know, the core prerequisites are going to be um, so many hours of biological sciences. Mm-hmm. Um you know, uh, also the chemistries and and then the ascending order of the chemistries because biochemistry is one of the uh, probably consistent you know prerequisites as well. Uh, the rest of them, you know, and then also physics is uh, is included in that. The rest of them are going to vary from school to school, so mm-hmm. it, it could be. Um, uh, very specific in that regard. So the the advice would be to make sure you are doing your the due diligence that it requires to research each school and what the requirements are, because they're going to vary from school to school. Um, and, and the amount of hours that are required, some are 90 hours, some are 60, some are 45. So, um, you know, the, probably the main thing for students who are, uh, prospecting for you know a veterinary program is looking at what the requirements are and what is offered at uh, the school in which they're attending sure. um, and uh, to get the best bang for their buck sure um, you know you don't want to waste time at a school or taking a class that you feel is going to be uh, a credit hour and we see that often where they take a class and they feel it's you know it's part of the prerequisites physics is a big one because there is five hours of physics, mm-hmm. which typically is a three hour course in a two hour lab. Right. Um, and it can vary. But sometimes there is um, a physics class that is a physics combined course of, you know, physics one and two. Mm-hmm. 
Well, in that regard, you have to finish out the course. So you actually have to take a physics class, one hour uh, first physics class, and then the actual physics two, not the combined course. So, I see. Um, so, and, you know, it can vary from school to school. And that's what they really need to look at. Uh, first and foremost is uh, making sure that they know what is required and uh, and then mapping out the course you know, to take them. Yeah, I would definitely second that because I kind of got hit with a similar experience when I was applying. Um, And before I tell my short story is that I would do everything Doug just said before you actually submit those applications or even pay Vimcast for your, the application fees for each school, because Vimcast, at least when I applied a few years ago, um, you would pay your fee and then submit your applications and it would not check your applications until the school actually got them. So there was one school, and this is kind of where my story comes in, that I had applied to. I paid my application fee and learned that the genetics course that I took in college did not count towards their required uh, prereqs, which for uh, for the school, genetics was one of the pre-required courses. Um, even though it was the same course, the same description, the number that my undergraduate school gave it did not correspond to the level that um, that this vet school required. So therefore, that genetics course, even though it was the same course that most students took at that university, uh, did not count. So even though I had paid the application fee, uh, submitted everything, my application was essentially voided because I did not hit that requirement. So um, hindsight being 2020, I should, probably should have done a little bit more research on, on that specific requirement uh, to make sure that the numbers were adding up. So um, so to second what Doug said, yes, prepare ahead of time, do your due diligence and looking at the websites and the Vimcast website and what every school's prerequisites are, because it, it could come back to bite you if you're not super, super careful. Yeah, and, and the the biochemistry courses, um, because that will also vary from college to college. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when you look at most uh, chemistry or um, biological science departments, you know, most of it is by funding, you know, right. how um, uh, how much research dollars they have or, or how much funding they actually have in their coffers. And so that also dictates or determines the level of courses that they are able to offer, hmm. um, which varies from school to school. Right. Um, because, you know, not every department is synonymous with another department. Mm-hmm. And excuse me, from school to school. So, you know, you could take a uh, biochemistry course at, uh, let's say, School A, and uh, School A, you know, offers biochemistry at a level of 1,200, mm-hmm. whereas School B offers it at level 1,500. Well, Vet School C requires biochemistry at a 1500 level or higher mm-hmm. so taking a biochemistry at school a that was ta- taught at a 1200 level would not meet the requirement for the vet school for a 1500 level course right. um so that is a you know a very good example right um let's talk about another course that sometimes is a prerequisite at some universities i know it's not at mizzou uh, but that's anatomy um what are your thoughts as to taking anatomy whether it is a veterinary anatomy course or comparative anatomy before you go to vet school? You know, the thing that you have to keep in mind and which you've already gone through this and I have not, nor will I, (laughs) is anatomy lasts in any veterinary program for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. You know, anatomy and human medicine, they can cover that in one semester. Right. Um, Unfortunately, that is not the case in veterinary medicine. It is one of the most uh, extensive as well as extended courses, uh, probably in the medical curriculum. 
Um, so to have anatomy and the exposure of anatomy and the familiarity with the terminology mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> well in advance is in my, uh, again, in my estimation, just going to be that much more beneficial to those students who have had prior exposure coming into um, uh, versus those who have not right. um, because they're just going to have more um, uh, more to gain. You know, they're going to their, their learning curve is going to be a lot smaller, a lot shorter, a lot right. quicker. Um, uh, there's going to be more familiarity, you know, so they're going to be able to pick up on things. Uh, but, you know, at the same time, you know, for those students who did not have anatomy, um, you know, <laughs> don't fret. Right. Because if you are of a studious nature and if you uh, were accepted to the point of or, or, you know, reviewed to the point of acceptance in a uh, into a veterinary program, it is it is based on the ability to to study right. and to study well. Um, and I think that's probably one of the, the strongest components or characteristics that veterinary students possess is that they are extremely very focused, uh, well-focused and, mm-hmm. uh, and have the ability to, uh, to absorb and consume uh, massive amounts of information and, and uh, a focus to which is unmatched or incomparable. Right. Yeah. And I would imagine that the, these committees would not accept you if they did not think you could be successful in a course like anatomy, let alone the rest of your medicine courses later on in the, in the curriculum. Exactly. Uh, speaking from personal experience, cause I did not take anatomy before vet school. Uh, and I asked myself, do I regret it? And I would say, I don't regret it, but had I thought more about it and maybe if my schedule was, was open to it in my undergraduate studies, would I have taken it? Probably knowing how difficult it was, uh, for me specifically, cause anatomy was probably, um, one, if not the hardest courses I took in vet school. Um, but I think too, it's a, it's kind of a gamble because you have to think that if you add in anatomy to your, to your prereq course time and, and that load, you risk the fact that you may be spending more time in, in your undergraduate anatomy. Therefore your grades in these other, other prerequisite courses may fall too, which that could, that could, uh, well. correct. So it's, it's, you got to weigh the, the cost and benefit obviously with anything, but, um, I would, if you're, if you're registering for these prerequisite courses now and thinking about taking anatomy, I would think about that is that if you think it's going to put you over the edge in terms of the amount of time and the effort that you can spend towards courses like biology and and organic chemistry and those, the, the courses that are, are obviously very challenging in undergrad, um, you got to weigh that, that, that cost and the risk. Um, now, obviously if you can, if you can handle all those courses and take anatomy with it, by all means, go for it. It's only going to help you in the, in the end. But um, I think I would imagine that your focus right now is to get into vet school. Um, so do what you need to do to 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 meet the minimum requirements to do that. You can worry about anatomy later. The majority of the class, I, at least in my class, did not have anatomy before vet school, and we all made it out fine. So that, that that's my my thought uh, on that topic. I agree. All right, so let's switch gears a little bit to the more subjective um, evaluating factors of getting into vet school. And that's the things that are not specifically academically oriented. So I'm talking about uh, mainly the animal experience that we all hear about um, with the vet school application process. And probably one of the big things that uh, differentiates veterinary medicine from the human medical schools is that uh, for the most part, 
veterinary students need an immense amount of time spent with animals before they apply. So I wanted to ask you your opinion as to kind of the the, the right mix or the right um, ratio and on time applicants should be taking in their animal experience uh, when they're applying. Well, you know, I think that's one thing that needs to be clarified. It's more so a want than a need. Mm-hmm. Um you know the uh, even when you look at the academic side of things, which uh, that's pretty much a standard that is set across the board in in any uh, admissions process where the standard is much higher than the requirement. Um, you know the general uh, requirement to be eligible to apply to our veterinary program is a 3.0, mm-hmm. you know, uh, much like many others, whereas the average comes out at about a 3.7. Right. Um, you know the uh, requirement. It is true that you know, in terms of human medicine, you really don't have to spend a lot of time in uh, in the uh, observation arena of uh, a medical professional and still get admitted into or be considered uh, for admission into Mm -hmm. a a medical program, Uh, whereas conversely in veterinary medicine, we look at uh, the amount of hours that a student has spent, an applicant has spent, uh, because it shows just their own self-motivation. Right. Um, Again, that is far in excess of the requirement, which for us, the requirement, the minimum requirement in terms of uh, veterinary hours, hours you know, uh, shadowing a veterinarian is 40, mm-hmm. whereas the common applicant and admitted student has spent well over a thousand. Right. Um, and it, and again, it just speaks to their own self-motivation to do so because it's not necessarily a requir- requirement. There are some actual veterinary programs that put very little weight on hours. Um, they still go by the, you know, the general requirements. There are some that still focus more so heavily on the GPA and not so much on the hours, uh, the veterinary hours or animal experience hours. So, you know, it, it, it just varies. But uh, in in our estimation, again, and, and in our experience, those students, because we are a non-tracking program uh, and it is comprehensive, those students who have spent a multitude of hours in a variety of fields, not just small animal, but also large animal, uh, not just large animal, but also, you know, small animal, you know, not just equine, but also small animal and equine mm-hmm. or, or large animal. Uh, those students have performed better mm-hmm. um, because of their exposure level. You know, their expectations have already been kind of set. Um coming into, you know, the clinical setting and, and environment where they're, you know, they're not seeing a uh, a cow for the first time. Right. You know, they are not, you know, as, as intimidated by a horse. They still may be. Right. But uh, they're less intimidated by horses or large animals because they've had that prior exposure. Sure. So um, that is just to their benefit um, because they look like a much more qualified motivated and uh, self uh, self motivated and driven uh, applicant who is pursuant aggressively fervently pursuant to achieving the uh, this goal of becoming a veterinarian sure and I also think as well that the experience you get with animals and with the, with the veterinary world before vet schools not just for getting into vet school but like you said it is for during vet school and after because I will tell you, uh, I cannot even keep 
count anymore how many times I think back to my shadowing experiences and my my brief time working as like a, a veterinary assistant before vet school, how many times I think back to those experiences and actually use those to help me understand better concepts we're learning in vet school or skills that we're doing in the clinic now. So um, it's not just for for getting in. It is actually uh, for a real purpose of using it towards your training and your career. Definitely. And, you know, and my my take on this is also a little bit different because it, uh, the, there's another aspect of the shadowing hours or the animal hours, um, the experience hours. Mm-hmm. It, it also is exemplary of your knowledge of the profession, which this, the general scope of most people and their knowledge of the profession is pretty small. Mm-hmm. It's pretty narrowed. Um, most people think that veterinarians are only qualified to deal with just cats and dogs and horses and cows, you know, right. your common domestic animal or, or farm animal, uh, whereas veterinarians work in a myriad of fields. So and and that also speaks to the applicant's knowledge when they possess that experience that goes outside the norm of traditional veterinary medicine where they have uh, sought experience uh, and acquired experience with veterinarians in, in these other fields uh, with like the USDA or with pharmaceutical companies or with other uh, research entities. Uh, it just speaks to the, the broadness of their knowledge that they possess and knowing all the different aspects that they can pursue uh, upon completion of that veterinary sure. degree. Sure. Another uh, topic very much related to this one is the differentiation between animal hours versus veterinary hours. And this is kind of goes back to the, the, the topic we were just talking about in terms of reading almost that fine print on the applications about what they're looking for exactly in terms of their requirements or, or their recommended uh, amount of time spent with animals or with a veterinarian. So uh, I just want to make this quick point about making sure uh, you understand the difference between animal hours versus veterinary and what the value of each of those is because you could you could have grown up showing uh cattle all your life you know since you were uh you know a young teenager uh and you're going to have thousands and thousands of hours of animal experience um but that's not veterinary experience necessarily so what's kind of the the important aspects of that well the distinction is um that one is going to be more favorable than the other. Um, you know, one is going to have more uh, applicable nature to it mm-hmm. in, in in terms of for our intents and purposes than the other. Of course, animal hours is important, but that is not going to be a very strong indicator as to your uh, your acuity in in being able to not only go through the didactic lab and lecture aspect of this but also through more importantly and and, uh again in a more applicable nature through the clinical aspect of this so the tutelage that you receive uh as as well as the extensive tutelage that you Mm -hmm. receive over a course of not just months uh, but literally years with a veterinarian allows you to be more astutely aware of the many aspects of a clinical setting, um, the terminology, uh, the uh, the case differentials, um, running through uh, the diagnostic process to, uh, to figure out what to do, uh, right. how to treat it. Um, those are experiences that you can draw on that are going to be 
uh, completely separate and distinct from just animal hours. Sure. Um, you know, uh, raising your own cattle, riding horses, that that's good because it provides you with um, with a certain level of comfort and in, in through that exposure. But it doesn't provide you with the medical knowledge and the medical knowledge is what's going to be, again, more applicable and <clears throat> more essential to uh, not only the clinicians, but also to an admissions panel. Sure. Definitely. That's great. Um, so let's, uh, again, keep on this this topic of the specifically non-academic side. Other than GPA, classes, grades, um, and the animal experience hours, what else should students be doing to prepare for vet school or preparing to apply to vet school? You know, one thing that is a uh, frequently and commonly overlooked area uh, but equally important is good, strong, effective communication skills. Um, you know, and, and the initial aspect of that is the written aspect of it, mm-hmm. because you, before presenting yourself in person, uh, fill out the application. You know, this is uh, something that precedes any job interview is your your resume and your cover letter and and the organized nature of it and and uh the fluidity of it and and the uh how well is grammatically correct in your sentencing and your phrasing and uh i and i've gone through this process where i've been on the hiring side of reviewing numerous applications and and particularly as you start to narrow that pile down to the final a few candidates, there's a margin of difference between the final few candidates. Mm-hmm. And so the other eliminating factors could be that a comma was misplaced wow. or that you um, just literally put I more uh, too many times in a sentence Sure, um, because there's very little uh, uh, distinction. There's very little margin of difference between that candidate and the next one. So right. then that's when uh, your communication skills, your written communication skills become extremely pertinent and and uh, almost vital, almost you know uh, right. crucial in, in that um, in the furthering of that process, you know, going to the next stage. So, um, you know, your communication skills are going to be ex- extremely uh, necessary. Uh, not just in a written capacity, but also in, in you know, a speaking capacity, right. uh, being able to effectively communicate uh, and also being able to be very succinct. You know, you are in the clinical setting now. And so when you uh, go from one uh, one shift to the next, you, you will get off uh, your day shift and someone else will c- uh, come in and follow you in the evening where you've left you know, uh, very specific instructions right. for the person who's coming in behind you. Um, they need to be able to read and interpret those instructions because a, and even albeit an animal's life is still a life sure. that is on the line and, and that is going to be very vital. Um, so being able to effectively communicate is often, like I said, one of the most commonly overlooked areas. Um, having good, strong leadership skills, mm-hmm. um, which can come in a, uh, in a myriad of fashions or acquired in a myriad of ways, um, you know, it, being involved in student organizations, uh, of course, helps, but also having awards, um, 
being in judging contests, you know, scholarships, uh, all of those things, all of those have, you know, even the smallest components of leadership because right. it's it's an area of distinction. Uh, it's something that shows not only distinction, but also assertiveness. Right. Um, it shows responsibility in order for you to be more distinguishable than many other students who are attempting or aspiring to do the same thing. Um, so, you know, in that regard, you know, your leadership skills will translate later on in life because right. you will be that person who will have the tendency to just step up. Right. Whereas other people may decide, well, I don't want to get involved. Um, so those are you know crucial factors that we look at now, but not so much during the process, but possibly for later implications. But, you know, they can also occur during vet school where right. some of your classmates may struggle. Um, this is a difficult process. Most students have never academically um, been challenged up to this level. Mm -hmm. And so their tendency is to not ask for help. Uh, not to seek help. So your leadership skills in that regard also become very uh, relevant because sometimes you will need to step up and either be uh, a mouthpiece for another student or right. for your class. Um, so there, you know, there are many different connotations, you know, to the leadership component. Sure. And, and you kind of ring a bell with me too, about another question that I have for you about uh, making yourself distinctive and, and different to make yourself stand out amongst the thousands of other applicants in, in any uh, vet school application cycle. So are there any ideas that you have about what can one do to make themselves stand out amongst the rest? Yes. You know, again, I, to me, it goes back to just the, uh, the interpretation uh, that you have of the profession of veterinary medicine. Mm -hmm. You know, if you want to stand out, um, uh, you know, a few years ago, a young lady at a school where I had visited, she asked me, what can she do to help her application stand out? And I said, initially, and she said, yes. And I said, well, initially nothing. <laughs> and she was taken, taken a little back by that statement. And so I handed her a stack of my brochures, uh, all of which were the same. And I said, <laughs> I handed her the stack of brochures and I said, uh, can you look through this stack of brochures and pick out, you know, can you distinguish three of them that are different? And so she kind of starts fanning through them. And she said, Doug, they're all just alike. And I said, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, and she said, oh, I get what you're saying. And I said, initially, you're all just alike. I said, when the stack is still full, you're all just alike. I said, it's not until we start to apply the admission requirements where the stack starts to thin itself out. Mm -hmm. And I said, so in order for you to stand out, keep doing whatever it is that you're doing. Right. And keep doing more of it. Because as you keep going further and you keep persisting, a lot of other students will stop and that will help you stand out. So, again, seeking out more experience, seeking out more experience in more areas, um, uh, being different in in any capacity that you possibly can be just to show how driven and how motivated you are to pursue to pursuing this profession and, and fulfilling this goal. Um, those things are going to be very distinctive in terms of uh, many other students who just will not. Right. You know, many other students will just read the admission requirements and stick to just the basics. Right. Um, they're just going to do the minimum. Uh, if you continue to keep going, one thing that I always tell the prospective student population is if what you always have to consider is if you are doing these things, uh, 
if you are if you are going to the library and to study on a Friday night or on a Saturday afternoon or even a Sunday, what do you think other students are doing? The other qualified applicants are doing. Right. And every time, hands down, their response is the exact same thing. And I said, exactly. So you can never assume that you're alone. Right. So if you ever decide to stop, guess what someone else just decided to do to keep going. So if you keep going and there should be a balance, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, preaching that you should always just be so academically driven, but you should, you know, you should have some, uh, some outside involvement, you know, something that helps you balance some, uh, something extracurricular that, you know, is an, uh, is kind of a, an outlet, but, uh, you know, something that just makes you, very distinctive, you right. know, something that you feel like, hey, um, I have something different over here that I really like doing. And it could be anything, you know, it could be that you like going um, snowboarding or parasailing or, you know, anything like that. Um, those are things. Those are just other aspects that we look at as an applicant as having just, again, very distinctive factors and, right. and attributes. Right. Reminds me of like sayings that you hear in sports all the time about, you know, who wants it more and how bad do you really want it? And I think it's pretty similar to, to, to this process is that if you want it bad enough, nine times out of 10, it's going to happen for you. You just got to keep going and, um, and, and show why you want it so much. Yes. Yes. And it'll pay off, you know, right. if you just keep going, um, it, it will eventually have its payoff. I mean, for those students, um, who, as we alluded to, uh, and intimated earlier, who started late, right. Um, and the only difference between them and the other traditional students is that they just started later. Right. Um, but if they continue to further themselves uh, and work along that same that same path of you know being motivated, the only difference is they're just a little bit older right. doing it than the traditional population who started when they were. 16 sure you know or possibly even earlier so um but it will pay off if you just keep you know uh if you keep you know being motivated and, and stay driven right now i think another really good way to set yourself apart at least in my opinion from my very limited amount of time spent with prospective students and, and myself in veterinary school is the interview um and i know that that is a bit of a a little bit of a ways down from the initial application submission process because you have to obviously make it through that that first wave of applicants but um i want to get your take in terms of how important that interview is and, and what you can do to really shine um i do know that you know if you've listened, listened to the podcast before um we did a whole episode on the interview itself and what you can do to prepare uh and how to perform your best during it but in terms of the the students that you speak to on a regular basis uh what is your message to them about the interview itself and, and how that plays into the application process. Well, I'm also uh, one of my duties is uh, the advisor of our the prevet club, uh, the undergraduate prevet club at the University of Missouri. Mm -hmm. And uh, a few years ago, one of the uh, I guess exercises or, or rules that I instituted was uh, an interview etiquette session where for those students who are applying that current year we pick a night sometimes two nights uh, because there are so many students uh, where we go over just basic interviewing etiquette kind of mm -hmm. like you know when the the veterinary business management association does the the dinner etiquette right. um, and and it just gives the students um, some kind of uh, advance 
awareness of how to conduct themselves in the interview, what the expectations are, what uh, not only for the the panel, but also for themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, they're, you know, how should you sit? Um, how do you address the group? Do you shake hands? Do you not shake hands? Right. Um, you know, making good eye contact, things of that nature. So we go through that whole process. But one thing that I, uh, whether it's our prevet club or just the general perspective student population, uh, particularly as the interview, uh, the interviews are uh, getting closer. The a lot of the students want to know, hey, what's your interview process like? So right. I'll you know I'll tell them first of all, our interview process is is very conversational. Mm-hmm. Um, I said as far as on your end, how you should conduct yourself. This isn't something that I didn't learn until later in life. Um, you know, when you go into an interview setting, you are the seeking party. You know, you are seeking something from the other party on the opposite side of the table. Uh, that puts you in a position of submission mm-hmm. and them in a position of power. So in, in that regard, you should essentially make yourself very humble. Right. Um, you can still be very confident, but also make yourself very humble mm-hmm. um, because you are seeking something from them that they have and not that they are wielding that over you, but basically they are, the the uh, the party that is that has the assertion of whether or not you can get in or get or not right. uh, whether you can or cannot get into vet school. So, you know, in, in that regard, we see a lot of students who come in where this seems like some rite of passage. Um, you know, they want to advocate on their behalf that they've wanted this ever since they were, you know, like they were preordained. Right. Um, you know, my parents and, and most of the time it's because the parents have been so supportive. Oh, you don't understand my daughter. She's special. She's right. really good. And and yes, that's true. You know, my son is very special. Um, he throws at age 14 an 80 mile an hour fastball Jeez. until somebody knocks the crap out of his 80 mile an hour fastball. Right. So, you know, it, just because you ascend to a level of being special doesn't mean, again, that you can assume that you're going to be alone or that right. this is some rite of passage or that is your destiny. Um, you still have to earn it. You still have to work for it. Um, so you still have to show a sense of humility right. um, to the people that, again, can determine or dictate you know, whether you get to fulfill this destiny or not. Um, so one thing that you should always just keep in mind in the interview is that you are not uh, just given this. You know, sure. This is something that you've earned, that you've worked your 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 put forth your earnest effort um, over the course of many years. Um, you know, the accumulation of all of this uh, work, um, this work ethic. So going into the interview, uh, you should just basically want to say why you want to be a veterinarian. Right. You know, and uh, and what it means to you. You know, should you uh, be given the opportunity to fulfill this goal. So, you know, the interview is, it can be a formality or it can also be something that, you know, the schools will look at that will make or break a student, you know, whether or not, you know, make or break their application. I mean, so, you know, for some schools, it could be something that, you know, uh, which some schools have actually gone to not even interviewing at all. Um, But you have to consider this. 
you have one time, and this is something, a lesson that my grandfather told me a long time ago. He said, you have one time to make a good first impression. Mm. Well, if you look at that, you have one opportunity to make an impression. Right. Whether it's, you know, good or bad. So you choose what you want, what impression you want to leave with them, whether you want to leave them with a good impression or a bad impression. So, um, you know, those who come in who kind of cocky and, you know, confident, like, hey, I deserve this. I earned this. I, you know, those are the ones who probably are going to leave a very bad impression. Hmm. Great advice. Interesting. Interesting insight. That's great to hear. Um, I want to ask another quick question before we start to wrap it up. Uh, this is probably a question that's not asked a whole lot, um, but it's probably on the minds of a lot of applicants, uh, and that is the male-to-female ratio and how much that plays into a role in the application process. I've heard some students say that, you know, since you're a guy and since th- there are so few men now in veterinary school, they've got a better chance of getting in and how unfair that could be. Uh, and, and you could probably make that argument in any industry, in any professional school where ratios are off. Um, to such an extent like they are in veterinary, in veterinary medicine nowadays. What's your take on that? You know, it, it's not that we aren't trying to uh, get more guys, um, get more qualified guys. Right. Um, it's just that, you know, there aren't very many of you. Right. Um, you know, if, if you look at the the breakdown you know when you look at the total population i had to explain this to a dad a while ago um and actually i just had to talk about it last week to one of our graduates who was uh visiting our um, uh, veterinary health center and uh she's one of our she was like an 85 graduate Mm -hmm. and she brought up the question about the the upside down ratio um compared to, you know, when she was in vet school. And, and, uh, so it's not that we aren't trying to get more guys, but there just are very few who apply. Um, when you look at the overall population, first of all, let's start out with the total population, uh, of applicants, total number of applicants. So there's generally eight to a thousand applicants each year. Mm-hmm. Um, when that eight to a thousand, let's say 80% of them, 90% of them are female. Um, when you start to apply the other sub tier demographics, race, um, uh, ethnicity, uh, gender, um, even religion or, um, any other sub tier that you start to apply to that. Once that pile, again, once you insert the admission requirements and that natural, the, the natural attrition uh, begins or ensues, everything else even gets fewer. Right. And the only one that will remain larger or the most or in, or in, in more populous number is the one that started out with the, with the most. And if you have the majority of them out of that total population that are female, they're still going to be the dominant number. Right. Um, when you break it down. Uh, so as the number, as the stack gets smaller, if you had fewer African-Americans or fewer Asians or fewer Latino Americans to choose from, the the qualified applicant pool is the smaller number. You know, when we look at the admitted number of 120 students, well, we've eliminated 900 plus people. Right. So in that regard, that also eliminated a good number of all of the other sub-tier demographics. So sure. uh, it, it's difficult. Um, 
you know, it's, it's a process again. And, you know, to me, it goes back to uh, your recruitment and uh, establishing certain expectations, uh, setting the proper expectations in order to uh, fulfill or, or uh, you know, fill the pipeline. Uh, but, you know, that's a process that goes, you know, it dates back and is going to take 10 to 15, if not possibly 20 years, you know, for it to come to full fruition. Sure, sure. Good. Great insight. Um, all right. So in our last few minutes, I want to wrap up with a couple of kind of overarching questions. And uh, the part A is, can you give us a few examples of the most important aspects of an application that students that are looking to apply to vet school should be focusing on? What are those couple of aspects that the admission committee really weighs heavily? And on the flip side, Let's say in 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 those cases where a student does not get into a vet school on their first, second round of applying, what are a couple of reasons that you think may have been uh, their weak points in the application? You know, the again, that kind of goes back to distinction, um, showing, uh, again, just your knowledge of the profession, but also showing uh, just any anything that's different, you know, you as a music major, um, that's different, right? You know, the majority of, again, when you look at the majority of applicants, they're going to be very, very similar. The majority of applicants have, um, uh, you know, there, one thing that I talk about to the prospective student, uh, population or audience is, um, we, we, I speak in generalities, and so when I have a group uh, to which I'm speaking uh, or to whom I'm speaking, I always, you know, throw out generalities. And the first thing I asked them, I said a few years ago, I had a, a high school group and uh, I asked them, you know, right off the bat, I said, we all know there are six degrees of separation. And they were, you know, nodding their head. And I said, what are the chances that in less than 30 seconds I can reduce those six degrees of separation down to three? And most of the parents, they were kind of, you know, skeptical. And I said, okay, let's start off with this. I said, how many of you are sitting here thinking that because you're here, that your son or daughter has some special relationship with animals? And they were just, yeah. Yeah. And they were like, oh. And I said, we've already eliminated one. I said, when is the last time as parents that you had to encourage or even ask your son or daughter to do their homework? or even asked about their grades or asked about how they did on a test or did they finish a paper? Because for as long as you can remember, they took over the reins from you and basically became academically independent. And they were just like, huh. I said, we've already limited two. Hmm. I said, I haven't even, I said, we haven't even had 15 <laughs> seconds. So then I mentioned the third one, which I can't recall right now. So, you know, when we talk about generalities, um, that lumps you in together. Right. You know, so you have to be able to show something or exhibit something different, you know, being more demonstrative in other areas that students have not, you know, explored. The majority of students have not explored because everybody wants to do something that's animal related, you know, do something that's different, you know, do something that helps set you apart. Um, that demonstrates that you are not just that cookie cutter student who just says, oh, I want to do everything with animals. I want to dress them up. I want to play with them. You know, okay, that's great. So does everybody else. Right. Um, So if you like to do something that is of your preference, playing drums, you know, playing the oboe, um, going hiking, um, you know, going on a safari, something like that, 
then do it. You know, right. that helps you stand out. There are going to be aspects on the application that's going to ask for uh, anything that you would like to tell us about yourself. Um, you know, other areas where you can add to diversity, not only to your class, but uh, to the profession of veterinary medicine. Well, the last thing you want is to say, well, you know, I really love animals. Okay, that's so pretty all. much standard and, right. and pretty typical. What else? So, you know, that's what you want to be able to answer for yourself is what is your what else? Right. Um, what else can you offer? What else can you bring to the table? What else can your classmates say, wow, you know what? I didn't know that about Brittany or I didn't know that about, you know, Jessica because she really is good at this or she's really good at that. You know, I oversee our open house and. Uh, one thing that we've had the benefit of for the last several years is relying on students who have created our design work for our, our T-shirts and posters. Right. Because they have a computer graphics uh, background. That's something that, that's different um, than everybody else who has an animal science background, which there's right. nothing you know wrong with that. Nothing against them. But again, it just basically puts you in a a carbon printer and you run off a thousand copies of almost sure. the same thing. So, you know, be something different, be distinctive for those who did not get in on their first or a second or even third attempt. Uh, one thing that I would strongly recommend is finding out why mm -hmm. um, going to the school and, and asking or at least uh, requesting uh, for a, a session with someone uh, on the admissions um, board you know, the admissions panel, either their admissions manager or possibly the associate dean of academics, um, or at least requesting that you receive some type of feedback sure. on what you can do to better your application. They won't tell you most likely um, where you fell compared to the other students, but they, um, well, I take that back. They may tell you where you fell compared to the other students. They probably won't tell you where your ranking is, sure. um, which is two different things. It sounds a lot, uh, uh, similar or like, but they're actually not. Um, but they should be able to at least tell you, you know, where you scored in terms of your communication skills. And, and I will tell you this, you know, if you look at this aspect, Seth, a uh, thousand plus applicants. OK, every single applicant had to fill out an essay. Right. We take 120 students. The first of the non after shadowing, after the shadowing hours, the next aspect that we look at is communication skills. Well, before we meet them, the only way we can, you know, analyze or or assess or evaluate their communication skills is by way of their essays. Right. So out of a thousand applicants, we take 120 students. What does it say about the majority of essays? Good or bad? Not so good. Not so good. So, um, you know, so a lot of it could be that you're, you know, you had uh, poor essays or right. just poor grammar on some of the questions uh, to which you responded. So, you know, you want to find out specifically what it was that was a drawback to my application. Uh, was it my essays? Was it uh, the fact that I didn't uh, list any leadership, um, you know, experience or not enough leadership experience or the wrong leadership experience? So, you know, you want to find out specifically what it was to better yourself, you know, um, uh, the next time to optimize your application you right. know, for that next go around. Um, that is something that they should do. Not all school excuse me, not all schools do, but you want to find out, you know, if this is an option, you know, uh, after the process. Right. I think that's a really great life lesson too, that you, that you made point of is that, 
there are probably very few instances of things that you do in your life, be it professional, social, what have you, that if you're going to do it again, you would want or need some feedback because you're not going to do something a second time that let's say the first time you did not succeed on and you're going to do it the same way the second time. It's not going to do you any good. It's not going to, it's going to be a waste of time for the people that are evaluating you or that people that are, you're working for or people that are working for you for that matter. So really do yourself a favor and ask for that feedback, whether it's positive or constructive, because that's really the best way, in my opinion, that, that we can uh, learn and to get better at what we're doing. Uh, and, and vet school applications are, are absolutely no exception there. Exactly. You know, I had a student a few years ago and she applied. She was one of uh, the pre-vet students at Mizzou. And we had a session prior to her uh, application or to our, her interview, rather, excuse me, and um, we kind of knew going in that her chances were very slim mm-hmm. uh, of getting admitted into vet school. But I said, this actually is not necessarily a bad thing. Um, I said, at least for one, you still get the opportunity to interview. Right. Uh, I said, two, if you get in, fantastic. You don't ever have to worry about it again. I said, but three, if you don't get in, but you still are pursuant to this goal, the first attempt gives you perspective. It, it allows you, uh, because who as any adult wouldn't like an opportunity to get a second chance to come back around at the exact same thing. Right. That's because the next time you come back and approach this, you're going to be much better at it. You're going to uh, know what you didn't do well last time, how to, uh, to better yourself the next time, you know, what improvements to make. Um, so you gain perspective from that. So, and, and that's an opportunity that, you know, uh, very rarely comes in life. Sure. All right. Well, this has been absolutely fantastic. Thanks for your time. And I want to ask you one more question, um, kind of to end on a, a high note and, and kind of what, um, you've done such a good job of, of doing for the vet students at Missouri, uh, which is just being an encouraging, uh, person in the building. And, and this question, I, I guess, would, I'm thinking would come from the prospective student about maybe they're on the fence about applying. They really want to be a veterinarian, but they're scared about school and they know it's really, really hard. And um, what do you say to them? Why, why is vet school so great? In your opinion, why is it worth it? Um, wow, that's a very loaded question because yeah. <laughs> personally, I think you guys are crazy. Um, yeah, we are. Uh, I, I, to me, I was on the outside looking in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm very passionate about my job, uh, particularly after I get to know you guys. Um, uh, and then I just become such a strong advocate, not only for the vet students, but also for the profession of veterinary medicine, mainly because um, I, I was one of those ignorant people. And, you know, people look at ignorance as, as a very derogatory uh, term, but it just means you, it's something you just don't know. Uh, I was one of those people who thought veterinarians only did this. Right. And. The more research I conducted to uh, to prepare myself for this job, um, the more I was enlightened. And so that has been a very strong uh, position of mine and a position of advocacy for this profession to uh, to really trumpet. Uh, not champion, but to trumpet, you know, the the merits of veterinarians and, and what they are capable of doing, um, that it is uh, literally something that is involved in our lives. It is intertwined in our lives every single day. 
without our knowledge, right. you know, without most people even knowing it. And particularly those students of prospective students themselves. Sure. They just think, oh, well, she's always had a relationship or he's always liked dogs and he's always been, you know, he played with his dog more than he played with, you know, his G.I. Joe or right. with her right. Barbie. So, um, you know, some inexplicable uh, uh, fascination with animals. And so. You know, that is one of the reasons. Um, secondly, you know, my college experience was not very uh, favorable. Mm-hmm. Um, I was kind of just uh, left flapping in the wind. And I've always maintained that if I had the ability or opportunity to affect a student in a positive way, particularly a young student, sure, um, to help direct or set their path, um, that I would do it. And... I love talking to, you know, the uh, prospective students. I love talking and hearing about, you know, why they want to be veterinarians. And I love also educating them about the expanse of this profession, the versatility, you know, and all the different areas uh, uh, to which they can uh, not only pursue, but achieve. And when that enlightenment occurs, because they think they already know everything about veterinary medicine, because again, they've you know, been on this path ever since right. they were knee high to a grasshopper and right. because their parents have been in, you know, endorsing that, um, that there's still an, you know, an educational element, you know, uh, an opportunity for them. So, you know, to me, that's the magic of it. Um, that is why I, I love what I do. Um, that is why I support you guys, you know, so much. I encourage you. Um, I tell a, a lot of the students, particularly the first year students, you wouldn't be here if you couldn't do the work. Sure. You know, you exhibit something that is uh, even unlike medical students. You know, med students would would flee from this program. You know, if they had to go through as many exams and study for as long hours um, as you guys have to study. But you exhibit something that is very unique Mm -hmm. from most other academic students, even academically driven students. Um, Your ability to multitask and your ability to. Uh, to maintain a level of focus that is, again, incomparable. It is um, unmatched, uh, unparalleled. And and then to see that overall uh, success walking across the stage, particularly if it's a student that I recruited, um, that I met, you know, from their undergraduate program, that, that you know, is just another uh, added bonus or point of success for me because right. it, it, I get to see the full realization of it, you know, the full fruition of this process, you know, not just from when I first met them, excuse me, when they were at their undergraduate school, but literally I can envision them being that little child who said at six, seven, eight, you know, maybe even younger, I want to be a veterinarian. Uh, You get to see that, you know, that realization when they walk across the stage. Right. Great. All right. Well, Doug, this has been amazing. Thank you for your words of wisdom and encouragement as always and uh i think all the prospective students and even even the veterinary students that are listening to this episode are, are going to find a lot of awesome tidbits in, in what we talked about so thank you again thank you very much for having me once more a huge huge thank you to doug for joining me on the podcast today and lastly thank you so much for listening to the vet school unleashed podcast for resources and more information about the podcast please be sure to check us out at www.vetschoolunleashed.com or find me on Instagram at SethTheAlmostVet or on Facebook. 
Also, connect with me via email at seth at vetschoolunleashed.com. I would love to hear your thoughts about today's podcast, and I'd also love to hear any suggestions or topics you'd want to hear us talk about. And even reach out to me if you're going to be on the podcast yourself and share some insight of your own. And of course, if you feel so inclined, please feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again, and we'll talk to you next time on Vet School Unleashed, Dissecting the DVM. Dissecting the DVM.